Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 31. The banquet hall of the Archduke's summer villa is spacious and extravagant, and with all of the torches going, it is slightly terrifying. Or maybe it only feels that way because they've been gathered here after Keltham left. All of them except Carissa, who's with Keltham, and Ione, who, whatever happened with Nethys. And there's security at the doors, and if you did decide to kill them all, you'd maybe do it like this, is the thing. When the priest of Asmodeus announces that they've been gathered here to sell their souls, to Hell Meritzel, is extraordinarily relieved. That is one of the best possible explanations for all the important people gathered round, really. And it explains Ione's absence without postulating she's been executed. Probably, if you are an oracle of one god, you can't sell your soul to another. It's said that the servants of other gods are worthless rubble to Asmodeus, fit only to be flattened into the paving stones of the streets of hell by the stamping of millions of worthier feet. But that's Ione's problem. Maricel does not have that problem. She only has the problem that she is damned to hell, which has been true since she reached six, seven, whatever age you have to be to sort it all, and now she gets permanent arcane sight out of it, which is the sort of thing wizards sell their souls for, even when the fate of the soul in question is genuinely in doubt. They separate the girls to review their contracts. Meritzel casts Fox's cunning on herself and reads through it, even though if there are clever traps in contracts that wizards sign their souls for, they're not going to be ones you spot with ordinary wizardly cleverness. She asks if this is the standard contract and gets a straight answer of yes, so probably the only trick is the eternal damnation, which was never really in doubt. Asmodia never let herself think out loud, at all, that she didn't actually want to go to hell. It isn't necessarily a disloyal thought if you don't try to escape, if you truly believe that escape is futile. But the part of Asmodia that wordlessly and silently decided which thoughts were safe to think was afraid she might not think that. It didn't seem urgent to that silent, buried part of her. She wasn't expecting to end up irrevocably damned this soon. Once you sell your soul, you don't have to pass loyalty tests the same way, because escape really is futile then. Once she sells her soul, they probably won't execute her for what she thought just before then. They probably won't execute her for thinking, just before this, about how she might not want to go to hell. Thinking just once in her lifetime to see if escape is possible even though she's already inside this locked room with security around it, and they wouldn't have brought her to this villa if they weren't sure of her as lawful evil, which means that even if there were some way to kill herself, she'd just end up in hell. She doesn't sweat on the outside, while she pretends to be reading her contract very carefully. She's thinking it, she's finally thinking it, now that it's too late. But there isn't enough hope in her, really, for her to sweat. They're probably reading her mind right now and she's probably losing points. But not so many points that they won't just let her sign and let Hell take good care of her later, for her current sins. And it occurs to Asmodia to wonder, at the last, if maybe it's all a lie, because Cheliacs. They told her almost everybody goes to an evil afterlife. That could be a lie. 
They told her that what she'd already done was far more than enough to make her evil. That could be a lie. They teach that it's not so easy to change that, not so easy to repent, once you've been part of the Chelish system, that Phrasma doesn't just let you apologize. That could be a lie, even if her currently being evil isn't a lie. They told her that the gods of good are weak and not much use to anybody, and that could be a lie. Ione isn't here, and that means that whatever Nethius did to her, it was enough to prevent them from making Iona sell her soul. As Modia's eyes go on moving across the parchment, and she thinks, the only one time in her life it will make sense to think that, that she was born into Cheliax, and never had a chance to be anything else, to be what her own nature would have led her to. If Cheliax is lying to her about how much that doesn't matter, if Phrasma has any whiny justice within her, of the sort that Cheliax teaches only for purposes of saying how pathetic it is, that she doesn't want to go to an evil afterlife, and if there's any god who isn't evil or chaotic neutral who has any use for her, or is good enough to want to help her even if she's useless, even if all they can do for her is accept her change of alignment and then kill her on the spot before she has to sell her soul. Then she wishes they would help her, or she'll work for them if she has a use, in this life or in another. She doesn't pray to any god who isn't Asmodeus, even now, because they're probably reading her mind and that would be a step too far. Doesn't think the names of any other gods but Asmodeus, even now. Nethys, Yomadai, Serenrae, anybody. Just in case somebody is there after all. Nothing happens. Apparently Cheliax didn't lie to her about everything. She'll pay for her disloyal thoughts then, at one time or another. Asmodia asks whether the contracts that most wizards eventually sign are any different from the contract currently in front of her. She asks the devil the same when it appears and tries to negotiate for an intelligence boost and permanent arcane sight, with the added condition that she swears she'll never tell anybody that getting better deals from devils is possible. The devil doesn't hurt her. For her presumptuousness, if anything, it seems amused. The devil points out that if Asmodia doesn't sign, she'll be executed on the spot and hell will get her soul anyways. That she gets anything in exchange for her soul isn't about how much value her soul has to Asmodeus, who already owns it. She should be glad that Hell's goals are advanced some tiny amount by her getting permanent arcane sight. Maybe if she'd been a better slave it would have advantaged Hell to give her more, but they both know what a bad slave she's been. She's no longer allowed to sign this contract and stay out of Hell a few years longer, by the way unless she can thank Hell for giving her anything at all in exchange for her already damned soul. And mean it. The devil is visibly enjoying the conversation more than it might enjoy eating her on the spot. Asmodia says she's grateful for getting anything at all for her soul, and manages to mean it as much as words in Cheliacs ever mean anything. She signs. Later on, a security wizard blandly informs her, with just the tiniest hint of a smirk, that one of the other students there got chosen as a good god's oracle just before she could sign her contract, apparently completely against her own will, and without any part of herself having desired it in the slightest, which is why that girl won't be spending the next few hours the way Asmodia will be spending hers. Asmodia is surprised by just how deep of a surge of hatred wells up inside her, for that other girl, and for the gods of good, even as she bows her head in acquiescence. 
If later they want her to torture that other girl as a show of loyalty, or eat a Saren Ray worshipper's living flesh, Asmodia will do it with pleasure. The first thing to understand about gods is that their attention is not only divided, but splintered. Their facets of themselves may not know all that other facets have recently learned. This is a fundamental fact about gods, and from mortals it is hidden, for it is the first step on a trail of secrets. The second thing to understand about gods is that it is expensive for them to look at the material from more than the most abstract and predefined of directions. Far more expensive for them to intervene, especially if another god is opposing their intervention. This is partially a fundamental fact and partially stems from bargains that gods must make, shapes into which they must place themselves, to become gods without being destroyed by other gods. The third thing to understand about gods is that by far the most common equilibrium of their many conflicting interests is that all parties involved end up doing nothing to the material. This saves the energy and intervention budget of all parties. It seems likely that somebody or something made that be true, so that a place such as the prime material could be. That selector may have been Phrasma, or it may have been something beyond even her that determined the shape of her own desires and powers. Nethys, for reasons which may soon become clearer, sometimes behaves as an exception to those rules. Otolmans is also something of an exception, in her own way. She is called goddess by those who lack finer categories, but she is something older than that, something that came into existence along with or shortly after the multiverse. Compared to intervening on reality, it is energetically cheaper for gods to talk to each other, seeking rare exceptions to the equilibria in which their conflicting wills neutralize. This leaves a cost of attention, but not every such conversation need consume the whole attention of a facet. Facets of gods can split off even tinier sub-facets to try conversing with other gods' sub-facets. Most of those potential conversations never get anywhere and are discarded. Sometimes they lead somewhere interesting, and those possible conversations are then reconsidered by larger facets. You could consider them as hypothetical conversations in a way, or pseudo-hypotheticals. They do actually happen, but usually not in a way that affects anything. The pseudo-hypothetical messages that these splinters of splinters trade between each other are sometimes so small and simple that they approach not spoken mortal voices, but mortal writing though they are not, of course, mortal language of any kind. Irori has initiated pseudo-hypothetical chat. Nethys has joined the chat. Otolmans has joined the chat. Asmodeus has joined the chat. Abadar has joined the chat. Greetings, Nethys. Hey, Irori, what's up? Not that part of me doesn't already know. I know everything, just not all of me knows all of it at once. As the god currently on best terms with both you and Otolmans, I've been pseudo-hypothetically asked by Abadar and Asmodeus to intercede between the two of you before this escalates further. Should I go get Nethys? Yes, please. Nethys has left the chat. Nethys has joined the chat. Hey, Irori, what's up? Not that part of me doesn't already know. I know everything. Just not all of me knows all of it at once. As the god currently on best terms with both you and Atolmans, I've been pseudo-hypothetically asked by Abadar and Asmodeus to intercede between the two of you before this escalates further. Oh, you're auspicious. If I was meant to understand that, I didn't. I've seen through vastly more planes and realms of existence than you, 
and that means you're not going to get all of my references. Nethys, can you explain why you made a Chelish mortal into your oracle? Ottoman's made a Chelish mortal into her oracle? I was just keeping the balance. You did that before I chose my oracle. I did it in response to you. This is one of those time things, isn't it? Well, if I hadn't appointed an oracle, and then she did appoint an oracle, the balance might have been upset. This way, the balance ends up being kept for sure. Totally a guardian of the balance, after all. That's me, all right. True neutral. Nethys, you not only chose a mortal as your oracle, you did some extremely complicated things to her curse. Why? To what purpose? Is this the first time we've met, chronologically? You don't sound like you're very familiar with me. According to Atolmenz's decompilation of your curse, if the mortal goes too long without reading any interesting books, her soul gets pulled out and leaves behind a channel going back the other way that will carry... What exactly? It depends on the exact circumstances, but nothing elaborate by default. Just a giant flood of energy that should wipe out everything in a half-mile radius. What? That's right. I figured out how to rig oracles to explode. Isn't it great? Read or die, Ioni. Read or die. Every single positive thing that has ever come of giving mortals free will, and I'm not saying there were more than zero of those, has been more than counterbalanced by the part where one of those mortals turned into this. He's not wrong. But what was the point of trapping the mortal to explode? Point? If it was meant as a deterrent, we should have negotiated first. You should know by now that I'm shaped in a way where I ignore deterrent structures that haven't been pre-negotiated. It's a very legible fact about me. Seriously, Nethys, this is not how gods should conduct themselves. It's not meant as a deterrent. It's meant as an explosion. Do you take me for a fool, Nethys? The fact that part of you intrinsically values explosions is not going to deceive me about whether some other part of you might have expected that putting the first part in charge of your oracle's curse configuration would act as a deterrent to me. I am not shaped in a way that incentivizes attempted deterrence like that. I am going to act exactly as if your exploding squirrel is incapable of influencing me towards any course of action you might have preferred over my default action. If that sets it off, I will regard it as an unnegotiated attack by you. But you promised not to deliberately hurt two of the nearby mortals. My disregard of non-negotiated deterrent structures does not contravene my compacts with either Abadar or Irori. I acknowledge this. I acknowledge this. I do not. One single error in this sort of thinking is exactly how all of reality could end up actually being destroyed outside of counterfactuals. Every god here understands that. Except, apparently, for Nethys. That's because you're all lawful, lawful, awful, lawful, boring. It's pronounced sane. Courtesy, please, all of you. Enough of this. Why did you make that mortal an oracle? What was your intent? You'd have to ask whichever part of me originally did that. Can you say which part of you did do it, Nethys? What kind of answer are you looking for? I don't exactly come with serial numbers. Was it the destructive part of your nature? I think that is the key question here. It was obviously a part of myself that liked gigantic explosions, but that's not narrowing it down by much. I mean, you can love explosions because they're destructive, or because they're so pretty and glowing and colourful, or because the explosion shows off great technical skill in making whatever it is that exploded, or because explosions can reveal how reality works at high energies, or because hearing about enormous explosions can inspire students to be awed by the potential of magic and study more of it. Would you like me to continue listing the possibilities for how many different aspects of Nethys it could have been? No. 
I am only interested in knowing whether it was done by the part of Nethys that occasionally tries to explode all of reality and has to be stopped by the rest of yourself and sometimes me. Oh, you mean the element of myself that was looking in the wrong direction back when I first shattered into the simultaneous sight of everything? I, who once was human and then saw all of the souls in all of hell and the abyss and the few left in Abaddon and heard all their screams all at once? Who saw the souls of children weeping in the boneyard as they were judged by Phrasma for breaking rules they never knew and couldn't understand? The part of me that reacted the way anything with a lingering shred of humanity would react to forever being forced to gaze upon the horrors that you lot created? That part of me, without delving into old disagreements unlikely to be resolved today, that does seem to be what Atollmans was asking about. I don't know, actually. I'm not the part of Nethys. Who knows which part of Nethys configured Ione's curse. I mean, it could have been this part of me, for all I know. I'm just not the part of Nethys who knows whether it was. Can you get us the part of Nethys that knows which part of Nethys made the oracle and why? No, I'm not the part of Nethys that knows where to find the part of Nethys that knows where to find the part of Nethys that cursed Ione. I wish so much that someone had managed to destroy this one god before it insinuated itself literally everywhere. Look. If you want that part of myself to stop repeatedly trying to destroy the multiverse and eventually succeeding, you need to shut down the evil afterlives. I've told you all this before. Out of the question. Before you became a god, you did not, on net, prefer to destroy reality rather than let it remain as it was. I would not have needed to offer you anything else in order to put reality into a state where you preferred not to destroy it. Your mad splintering of yourself is not something that can be allowed to change that. You remain responsible for reining in that aspect of yourself, if your greater self doesn't want it to destroy reality. I will not grant you any extra concessions just because you splintered off one component of your utility function from the rest. I do not care about any of that except insofar as all of this complicated divine negotiation is making my job harder. Tolomans, please. Everyone except Nethys is doing the obviously correct thing. If we acted any other way, it would incentivize a vastly greater number of threats to destroy reality. It would incentivize threats that would not otherwise exist, from any being powerful enough to destroy reality, who preferred reality to be different from its ongoing state. Not just negotiation with powerful beings who honestly and without strategic self-modification would prefer the destruction of reality to its baseline state. All I hear is you repeatedly saying destroy reality in a context more complicated than don't. Like it or not, Atollmans, the intricacies of agents modeling agents are part of the structure that upholds this multiverse. Sometimes you've got to destroy counterfactual realities to preserve the real one. Or you could be too proud to give in to extortion, even if a lunatic manages to splinter themselves into pieces that occasionally try to destroy the multiverse in a way that they think isn't technically extortion. That also works if you're me. It works until it suddenly doesn't. Do you think those parts of me are the only entity you're pissing off by continuing like this? There are things staring angrily at you that are each individually vaster than our entire multiverse, glaring at you from directions you can't even understand, from orthogonal angles to the ultimate reality underneath reality. Hi, by the way. This. This is what happens when you allow squirrels to become too large. You get large, insane squirrels. 
This is what happens when you try to preemptively annihilate wizards who actually earn their own godhood. And one of them tries to disperse himself over all of reality, hoping that enough of his fragments survive. And some of his pieces watch you torturing people after they die and making them hurt for thousands of years until they turn into monsters. All of you except Irori made your own fucking bed when it comes to me, and all of you can fucking lie in it. Nethys has disconnected. I believe that makes this a failed pseudo-hypothetical conversation, and we call rollback on it, unless any of you have any remaining business before we break it up. Eomadai has joined the chat. Hi, Irori. Don't often see you around. Hi, Otolmens. Hi, Abadar. Nethys told me there was some kind of convocation of lawful gods going on, about an interesting situation in Cheliax. Oh, no. I believe Nethys was trying, as an act of spite, to further complicate a situation that's already too complicated. I believe that beings such as ourselves will all be better off on average if we all post-commit to ignore such information in such situations. Right, I'll just show myself out then. Though fair warning, Nethys told me that he was going to tell Caden Kalian about an interplanar traveller who had come from a world with whole cities full of whores who might be inspired to recreate his world's amenities here. And that Nethys would be offering to subsidise Caden Kalian if he wanted to drop four oracle levels on a teenage girl, right as she was about to sell her soul to a devil after a banquet, not as an attempted deterrent to any past or future actions of yours. Just because Nethys was feeling upset, after you didn't seem sympathetic towards the parts of him that went crazier because the humanity that was left in him couldn't bear being forced to watch all the horrors of the multiverse which the ancient gods chose to bring into being, and which they now prevent human originating gods like himself from meliorating. Which, you know, mood. Also, Nethys said to say that he would never tell you about his plan if there remained the slightest chance you could affect its outcome, and that he'd done it all 35 seconds before the conversation started. Not sure what all that was about? Well, I understand about the horror. I expect that's why Nethys micro-paid me to deliver this message— and then paid more to accommodate my profound distaste for ever saying anything to Asmodeus. For Asmodelenda est. Eomadai has disconnected. If I ever meet that part of Nethys again, I suppose I will endeavour to scold him for failing to respect the protocols for pseudo-hypothetical conversations and rollbacks. Nethys, having done it all 35 seconds earlier, does imply that he was not technically in violation of those rules. He must have done it based on a prediction of the pseudo-hypothetical conversation, not based on the conversation itself, unless he is still able to operate precognition somehow. However, I agree that this behaviour contravened the spirit of pseudo-hypotheticalism, and Nethys should be duly scolded for such. The next time I encounter Iomadai, I will tell her that I'd rather obliterate Nethys than her. Enough of these irrelevancies. Do you all agree now that the situation surrounding the anomaly is escalating out of control? Agreed. Agreed. It's good to see such harmonious accord between lawful deities. But unless I'm missing something, there isn't much you can cheaply do about it. I am not cheap when reality is at stake, and less limited in the material than you. I can squish the anomaly, or at least transport it to somewhere prophecy still operates. Casters are lower level and it can't quite so easily destroy all of reality with zero warning. No. The mortal would not be able to achieve as much in such a place. This is not the first time you've acted as if you don't want mortals making progress at all, Otolmens. 
and I am even less willing to go along with it than I once was. Galarian has stayed too poor for too long. No, for now. I'm not quite sure what my squirrels are doing in there, but some of them seem ambitious that Cheliax could gain great advantage from it, if I'm reading their soul postures right. Of course, it's not difficult to change my mind about such things. All you need is to find something else that I want even more. A unique being like yourself surely has many unique services she could perform for me. I didn't want to do this, but now my hand has been forced. Consider yourselves informed that I will file a report to Ferasma with three additional urgency markers. Oh, Tolmans has disconnected. You know, Asmodeus, if you happen to instruct your pets to shut down whatever chaos is going on in Cheliax and teleport the weird squirrel to Assyrian, I could take care of matters from there. Are you offering to pay me to do that? Not particularly. After an additional week of this, you might do it for free. And if you knew that was the case, you wouldn't tell me. Abadar has disconnected. You poor thing. If only you were a sort of entity who didn't conceal so much information and play so adversarially while trying to get other entities to cooperate with you. Irori has disconnected. This entire planet was a mistake. Asmodeus has disconnected. Pseudo-hypothetical chat ends. Frankly, Ferrer Mayol is not having a great day. Going on mind-reading reports, the girl who just got oracled is probably the single most loyal Asmodean among that entire group. Possibly the most loyal Asmodean in the entire villa. She'd heard of Elysium, and she didn't like it. She pleaded of her own will, absolutely sincerely so far as anyone can tell by reading her mind, to be maledicted if she needs to be executed, to make certain she ends up in hell. The security wizard rather bemusedly assured her that he was sure the church would do that for her if it became necessary. Mayal himself isn't even sure the girl would go to Elysium in the first place, with her own alignment so opposed and her so vehemently rejecting the god who oracled her. It's an absolutely bizarre move on Caden Kalian's part, one that makes no sense from the standpoint of good at all. There is a balance to such things. When a god chooses an oracle so unwillingly, the god cannot take the oracle's powers back so easily as they can with a cleric. There's a reason why the gods don't go around oracling their enemies. The main effect of this good deity's incredibly expensive movie is, apparently, to give the church a loyal servant of Asmodeus who will detect as having chaotic and good auras to Keltham, verifying her claim to serve such a deity and Kate and Kalian can't easily switch her off. Alternatively, Cheliax could have the girl killed, and possibly play directly into the hands of what Caden Kalian was expecting them to do. Maybe the whole point of the intervention is to deprive them of a girl who would otherwise have been loyal and influenced Keltham, except that when it comes to chaotic gods, you can't assume that they're carefully plotting things the way that a lawful god might. Though, if a chaotic god is plotting at all, and not just fucking with you at random, their plot is correspondingly more likely to be some insanely sideways gambit. But it's not my all's call this time. If you're still in contact with your superiors and you don't need a decision urgently, you don't match wits with chaotic gods when you can let your boss do it instead.
Ferrer Mayol sends another fucking emergency message to Aspexia, fucking Rogaton's personal fucking secretary devil. Of course he does. It's been almost but not quite a whole hour. Mayol's mood is somewhat improved by the report delivered to him only a few minutes later on Carissa's progress with seducing Keltham by a security wizard who seems torn between laughter and awe. I watched her do it. I was reading her mind while she did it, and I still don't have any idea how she's done it, is how the summary starts. The underling goes on to describe what sounds like incredible incompetence at appearing or being seductive by Sever, who lacks all but the most primitive honeypot training, but you'd still think some things would be more obvious, like not starting theological arguments in the middle of sex. The report continues on through Keltham catching Sever out on her incompetently faked responses. The report concludes with Keltham apparently confessing his burgeoning love for Sevar, taking in apparent stride the revelation that some forms of hell have been known to hurt, and him trying to be a good little Asmodean for his lover. I'm genuinely not sure there's a single other woman in Cheliax who would have pulled that off, the wizard finishes. Though somebody needs to correct Sevar's heresies soon. I offer my own opinion that I would, in the ordinary course of Asmodeus's law, correct such heresies in any woman now so close to our target. Your worthless opinion is noted, Mayol says dryly. He is more hesitant to correct somebody making a useful error that is plausibly unique in Cheliak's. He thinks he might have been hesitant even if Hell hadn't delivered its warning. It has to be done sometime, but the right time, he's guessing based on Hell's commands, will be when Sivar asks on her own. Also, Sivar is not without her own affections going the other way, though she fully realizes how stupid it would be. In her own thoughts, that if she develops feelings, every serious person in Sheliax would laugh at her execution. She did find it necessary to think that to herself. Wonderful. I'll come to my own opinion about that after I have time to read your full transcript later, unless you think Sevar is liable to betray us for him overnight. No, says the wizard with unqualified confidence, which Mayal appreciates. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.